This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Working, the podcast about what people do all day. I'm Jacob Brogan. This season on Working, we've been talking to people employed in fields imperiled or threatened in one way or another by the Trump presidency's agenda. These are the stories of individuals doing difficult, important jobs, jobs that are likely to get a lot more difficult and a lot more important in the years ahead. Our guest this week is David Mott, a labor organizer with Service Employees International Union, or SEIU, as you might know it. If you've ever wondered what a labor organizer actually does, this episode is for you. David talks to us about how he came to labor organizing in the first place and what he thinks unions are really for. He also tells us about how he works to organize a workplace, looking sometimes almost literally mapping out the ways that people relate to one another uh, in their jobs and, and in their physical environment. And he also talks about how his work fits into and responds to the current political environment uh, between Trump and, and his own administrative agenda and the role of so-called right-to-work states, which are pushing back uh, against the ability of people to unionize. Then, in a Slate Plus Extra, David Mott uh, tells us about how he uses music. He, he had actually brought a guitar into the studio when he came to record with us. So he tells us about how he uses music uh, in his organizing work. That might sound crazy, but this is one of my favorite Slate Plus segments that we have ever done. Bring out the guitar and people go, oh, God, you know, this is so <laughs> embarrassing. Why is he doing this? You know? Well, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. Uh, and I would well, really, really encourage you to listen to this one. If that means that you have to subscribe, uh, you can get that and other great Slate Plus extras by going to slate.com slash working plus to start your two-week free trial today. What is your name and what do you do? Uh, my name is David Mott, and I am uh, organizing coordinator for the Service Employees International Union. and uh, SEIU. SEIU, known, known as SEIU. And, uh, you know, for layman's terms, I mean, I'm an organizer. I'm a labor organizer. That's what I do. So if someone has never organized labor before, had their yeah. labor organized, what is it that you're up to? I mean, there are a lot of details to the work, but essentially what being an organizer means, I think, is displaying leadership and helping workers build a union, build an organization where they work, right? And really be able to build an organization that they then use to improve their lives. At a practical level, though, once you've built that bedrock, once you've established those foundations, mm -hmm. um, what are you hoping that you'll be able to help people accomplish in their workplaces? Number one 
It is about having respect, right, on the job. And there's lots of different stories of people who, you know, were frustrated for a variety of reasons. It could be about the pay. It could be about, you know, health care benefits. It could be about not getting the first shift. Whatever it is that motivated them to start thinking about building a union. But afterwards, you know, once they've had the union and been able to work with it for a while, people will say a couple of different things. One, you know, my boss now treats me like an equal because he has to, right? Two, people have a real sense of being able to speak up about their work, about conditions at work, and be able to speak their mind without having to be worried about getting fired, right? That leads to everything else. I mean, if you can't speak up, you can't advocate for a decent pay. If you can't speak up, you can't complain about dangerous working conditions that could put you out of work forever, right? So it all really comes down to having a powerful organization in your workplace that you really can use as a worker to advocate for your interests. So you're not just advocating when you go into a workplace then for specific uh, issues like uh, more money, better health insurance, you're actually trying to create frameworks in which people can advocate for themselves? Yeah, Am I understanding exactly. Right? No, exactly right. And, and the truth is, if you, you know, a good organizer doesn't go into advocating for anything. You know, people will say, well, what's the union going to do for me? I said, nothing. What are you going to do for yourself? Okay. You know, I'm not here to do good things for you, per se, right? I cannot do anything in your workplace. What I can help you do is build an organization that you can then do for yourself. Hmm. So it's not somebody coming in on a white horse saying, don't worry, we'll get you a good contract or X, Y, and Z. Quite frankly, I don't know what workers want, right? I've had conversations where I thought workers wanted X and comes out to be that they're really more interested in Y. So part of the process is really listening to what people are telling you about what's important in their life and then linking that to the union, hmm. right? With the union, you can accomplish these kind of things if you put your mind to it. So how did you get involved in this work in the first place? What led you to union organizing? Um, I've always had like a rebellious streak, right? And I grew up in the 50s and the 60s, right? And so things, you looked at the Cold War, you looked at the civil rights movement, and then it was the Vietnam War. And you just go through all of that and you say, this makes no sense. It's absurd how we've organized ourselves and how authority in, in our country and authority in your life just doesn't listen to you, right? And so that was part of it. But then I began as a reporter in Vermont, and I got there, got hired, and about a week later, some guy sidles up to me and goes, hey, man, we're building a union here. Sign the card. <laughs> this was another reporter, another journalist? Another journalist. And I'm going, oh, okay. From, from your organization? Yeah, your yeah, from, from there, there. And so, okay, he talked to me about it. He said, this sounds good. You know, this makes sense to me. Yeah, we should have a voice about what's going on at work, right? And uh, because I came at the same time that the union arrived, management thought that I had brought it. <laughs> that wasn't the case at all. I was at that point pretty much a follower, right? But they made my life miserable. And, and management did. Yeah, and um, got demoted and different things. And so I said, well... Now I'm into it. And it just became exhilarating to me to really think about what you can do as a group of people that you could simply not do on your own. And that's really the essence of the union. You are able to accomplish things together that you can never accomplish on your own. And so that's how I became an officer of my local there. And then we went out on strike 
And quite frankly, it was a disaster. And the organizer at the time was somebody who did not exercise leadership. Was that organizer a professional? Yeah, he was a professional, right? And uh, I remember sitting in the union hall as things were falling apart and just saying to myself, workers deserve better than this. You know, I think I can be better than this. And that was the decision I wanted to become a union organizer. What was the value you, you saw in it in those first days, though? Um, one, it was fun. <laughs> you know, I mean, don't discount just having fun. You, 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 you really do have – I was elected uh, sergeant of arms, right? For your union? Yeah, for, uh, for the union uh, when I was reporter. And after a while, I said, you know, why in the world do we need a sergeant of arms? We all <laughs> love each other. We get along great. I don't have to escort anybody out of here. Because you really do have this sense – of being just connected to each other. It doesn't mean you agree with everybody. You know, there's all kinds of people that come into the unions. You know, you got the Republicans, you have Democrats, you have white folks, black folks. The union is a slice of life in America. That's what it is. There's no criteria to get in except that you want the union. So you've been working in that environment for decades yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. Has the dynamic uh, of the of unions, of union organizing, of, the, of that work changed over time? Yeah, I would say it has. I mean, it's, it has changed to some extent. The, the basics are always there. It is a labor-intensive job. It is about talking with people and engaging workers in an organizing conversation. And so those kind of principles are the same. Leadership, finding people who are natural leaders, they're, they're all over the place. It is un knowing people well enough to know what their skills and contributions can be to each other, right? It's those kind of things. Now, that hasn't really changed. You know, when I was organizing, I would be out in a nursing home. So it was very solitary sometimes, right? Now, uh, the what we call the technology, but really trying to figure out not just how to organize a nursing home by nursing home by nursing home or hospital by hospital or building, if you're organizing janitors by building by building, but to organize industries. Hmm. Are nursing homes the primary workplace that you operated in? Yeah, healthcare, not just nursing homes, but healthcare generally, mental health agencies, uh, MRDD, group home operations, for example, but basically healthcare, nursing homes, some hospitals, uh, and both public and private. And when you go into a space like that, are, are you generally working piecemeal? Is it this nursing home and that one and this hospital and that one? Or are you trying to bring different institutions, different workplaces together? You know, when I first started out, it, it was, I would say, not so much piecemeal. We did think about the other nursing homes in the area and how to build power in a town or community and so forth. But it is much more so trying to think about it. You still have to organize the nursing home, for example. You know, our union organizes janitors. They don't organize um, building by building. They really do take the industry-wide approach in within a geography, a city. You know, so that the idea is that at some point, certain, all the employers are now under contract. Workers have a union. They're representing the entire industry, working with the entire industry to set standards. Yeah. And that's really what you want to try and do is set standards, wage standards, benefit standards, working standards, safety standards. Yeah. And that's very hard to do piece by piece by piece. So when you're starting with a new workplace. How do you get involved in the first place? Do you just show up one day? I assume not. I mean, I assume someone gives you a call and says, hey, we're thinking about heading in this direction. Certainly people give us a call. 
And those are wonderful calls, you know. <laughs> you go, oh, yes. <laughs> you know, it's great. Uh, and so, yeah, certainly you give a call, but not necessarily, right? Um, and so when we look at uh, the industry that we're organizing, many times, um, you know, just show up. You know, it's not like you don't plan it. You do. It's, it's a lot of thinking, strategy, intellectual work goes into this. But there is this process of trying to figure out who works there. You know, how do you figure that out? Bosses aren't going to give you the list, right, to go talk to the workers about joining the union. Um, so you have to have a, a way of doing that, right? And to the extent that you, you know, where you have members, for example, we have members already in the union, uh, certainly in my local we would talk with them and spend a great deal of time helping to train them to think about how do they improve their union by making it larger, right? And so if there's a nursing home down the street, I would say to a member of our union, you need to go make contact with those folks and just start having conversations. You'll see them in the grocery store. You'll see them uh, at church. You know, they're part of your community. Go talk to them, right? And so that helps generate what we call contact. You know, somebody who will say, yes, I'd like to talk to you about this, right? Right. Uh, there are other times when we just show up. So once you head into a specific place, as they say, a nursing home in Ohio or something like yeah. this, right? Is that mostly where you work? Ohio, West Virginia, Kentucky. Okay. Yeah. So so you go into a, a, a nursing home and uh, that's not yet organized. Right. Maybe there's some interest from mm-hmm. some employees. How do you start reaching out to people? What's the process for you of beginning to actually organize the workers in this as yet Unorganized, if not disorganized, workplace. Um, you know, person-to-person contact, right? Standing outside the place with a leaflet is like a dead giveaway. And, you know, in this country, it is very easy for employers to simply call people together wherever they work and just, you know, put an end to the campaign mm-hmm. right quick. Uh, and so you want to be somewhat strategic about it. You are trying to put together this organization very, very quickly. Because you are in a race against management, the boss, right? If the boss hears about this, he will attempt to scare workers. There's all kinds of ways they keep people divided. Their goal is to stop it before it even gets out on the ground. And so you're really racing very, very quickly, person to person to person. We do a lot of house visits. Just go to people's homes and knock on their doors. And you get the information from other people who are interested in uh, other workers, right? Uh, sometimes it's just public information. You can figure that out. You know, you start with one person. Who else do they know? And at the same time, this is a process of building leadership with people. Again, it's not me that's going to make this union go. It is going to be the workers at wherever it is. You transfer the leadership of this organization in many ways, even as it's fledgling, to the workers themselves. And that really is important. Wait, is this a worker calling me? Hey, wait, I want to join the union. You've been listening to David Mott. After this phone call, David Mott tells us a little bit more about how he maps out a workplace and brings it together as an organization. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You have to act quickly. You have to be the first to field, as it were. Generally speaking, though, if, if this is answerable, how long does the process of organizing a workplace, say that nursing home, that hypothetical nursing home we were talking about earlier, uh, take from beginning to end? It depends on the place, and it depends on you know. Uh, you know, I can only speak from my experience. If you're organizing a nursing home, you should be able to file what we would call a petition, setting up an election where workers have signed on a card, signed a petition, made a physical representation that they want to do this. And if we lived in a country that valued really workers' rights, within two weeks, you could have a union. You actually have a union in two to three weeks. But then the process is having management recognize it legally. And that involves the National Labor Relations Board and all of that. And so workers in this country have to go through a really rough process of proving to the government and then proving through that to management that they are serious about having a union. And so a nursing might, might take three to four months, right? That time management is full-fledged campaigning against the union. And I would just say this, uh, you know, we're in this thing with Trump now, right? And all the Russians hacking this. This is nothing compared to what workers go through in a union election. Mm. For example, if a candidate for pre- if if Trump could have taken instead of having rallies, he could have taken all the Clinton supporters and put them in a room and threatened their employment, threatened to take away hours, to lay them off, you know, for voting for the union or for voting for Clinton, right? That's what workers go through. So, from your perspective, when you're in a workplace and these threats from management start to come in people start getting concerned. How do you respond to the fears that they start bringing to you if they bring them to you? Well, the key, you you obviously have an honest conversation with them, right? And it is always interesting after the election. You know, you have conversations with people who went through that, have now been in the union for a while. And you just say to them, all that stuff management told you, any of it true? No, <laughs> it's not. Of course, the person at the time of the campaign doesn't know that. Right? And management is counting on their authority. But the key is this. The key is that it really is the first conversation you have with someone. It's explaining to them what's going to happen. Right? So it's not like you're just organizing the paper, yay, rah, sus, boom, ba, let's go walk into a buzzsaw. Right? You really are having a conversation. Say, honestly, do you think your boss is going to like you having a union? Mm-hmm. And they'll say, well, you know, by the way, workers are very fair. And so they say, well, he probably won't like it, but he won't do anything, you know. And so we will take them through a conversation about here are the things that we have seen in other campaigns. Here's what they have done. So we'll give them some examples of things that will come out very, very quickly. I mean, management is not too imaginative. You know, they will say the same things over and over again. Ramp it up so that signing this card is the worst thing you could have ever done. Union card I'm talking about. So you have this conversation with them. But the key to this conversation is really setting a context for what's happening in this workplace now. 
and that is that there is occurring a shift of power, right? Workers are building an organization to have power in their life. Management will do anything to prevent that shift and to maintain all the power. They're fighting to keep their power. They will give you a raise. You want a raise? I'll give you a raise. Don't vote for the union. I'll give you a raise. They'll do things to stop workers or to think that workers have won. So it's not about money per se. It is about power. And workers are organizing to have power. Bosses are fighting to keep their power. And that kind of context helps people weed through things, right? So, oh, why is he telling me this? Oh, he just wants to keep his power, right? And the other thing that is extremely important, which just is critical, is to have members of the union talking to them, right? Being involved in this campaign and saying to them, I'm a nursing home worker like you. So it's not just oh, you not, that's there. You're also oh, that having will, workers from other nursing homes absolutely. who are already unionized come in? Let me tell you something. I've been in conversations, and it's just it's funny to, to watch it if you're there. Nursing home worker talking to us, and I'm the organizer, right? So I you know, might start out, and within a very short period of time, I am completely out of that conversation. I'm just surprised. And these two are going back, you know, talking to each other about their work, about this and that. And the message from members is that this works. I went through it. It stops when you win because now there's no point to the boss doing this. But that, every, you know, I still have my hands, my head, you know, I'm a whole person. And so it is critically important because people in the union are the best testament for why workers should build the union. And that, yes, you can be afraid, but if you stick together, you will win. What percentage of your interactions are these kind of one-on-one -on -one conversations or, or, or facilitating other one-on-one -on -one conversations? And, and how much of it is like actually big meetings and stuff? I, I, there must be some of that, right? <laughs> yeah. Dude, so you're really asking me, uh, do, I, do, do I give these dramatic speeches? Yeah, do you give speeches at, at a podium? 250,000 people, whatever, oh, right? Well, maybe 250 uh, 250 people? 250 people. <laughs> well, certainly that's, you know, I mean, that is a part of it. It is exhilarating when you're out, you know, you do that. But even the key there, in meetings, right? If you have 200 people or 100 people or 50 people, whatever it is coming together to talk and make decisions about what they want to do, if it is just you as the organizer in front of that room, that's not a good dynamic. Right. They may like you. You may be the best speaker in the world. But when push comes to shove and the boss comes down on them, you know, you're not going to compete on that. But if you have their coworkers up there talking, leading, right? And so their connection is not to me. The connection is to them, mm -hmm. to each other. That and the commitment to stick together, that's the key. It's, you have to say to people, if you are not going to stick together, don't start. Is, is all of the resistance, though, resistance that's coming from things that management is saying? I mean, what, do you, what do you say to people who would argue that you know, say labor unions had their place when uh, workplace injury and sweatshops were more common, but but now they just get in the way of economic prosperity. I mean, that that must be an right. argument that a lot of people have internalized or, or, or believe in one way or another. Well, I, I think there's, yeah, absolutely. You will hear that. And sometimes very honestly, right? People say, I had a bad experience with unions. It wasn't good, you know? And people will say that. And some of that is like second or third hand, but some of it's very personal and very real, Right. And it's like, do we make mistakes? Yeah, sure, we do. Are there limits to what 
a union can do in any particular situation? Absolutely, you know. And these kind of things, people have to make a decision. And so you are really helping people make a decision. Sometimes people will say, no, I don't believe it enough. It's not a bad thing, but I'm not willing to invest myself, my energy in this. And okay, and if enough people at a place say that, then there's not going to be a union there. At what point do you want to start talking to management? Is that ever part of your involvement with the process of organizing? Not in the way that you mean. There are different things that, you know, I think are very important. And one of them is to have workers as a group together. Once they've made this decision and they have a majority of people, a majority of their coworkers committed to each other, is to go to management as a group, you know, and ask them to recognize the union, right? And I've never been in a situation where management said yes. You know, you don't expect it. That's not the point. What's happening here is they're feeling that shift of power already, right? And, you know, some of these folks, bosses are very, you know, can be very smooth. Some of them can be very brutal, right? Uh, and, you know, you some sit where they would just, you know, I will never recognize you. This union, you know, never go back to work while, you know, and so you can run into that situation. That's okay. Workers just saw what they're up against. And so they have made a decision. Other people are very smooth. Oh, Mary, I'm surprised. You know, I, I just, I, I'm hurt, really, Mary. I'm hurt. You know? I'm convinced. You know, right. And it's, and actually the smoother is much more effective because workers want to give people a chance. They're fair. They're, they're very decent. You know, they're fair. Uh, but what that does, it is a test for people. And it is a way of them strengthening themselves by stepping out and saying to management openly, we have decided to do this. And we expect you to respect us in our decision to do this. And when he doesn't, or she doesn't, it's a powerful organizing tool. How do you know, or is it even your place to, to, to know when they're ready to have that conversation, when they're ready to ask for recognition? Traditionally, you will have people sign you know, authorization card, which goes to the labor board to set up the election process, right? Mm -hmm. And so if people, and, and it, you just have to be very clear with people, signing this card means you want the union. Signing this card means you are committing to your fellow employees, your coworkers, that you are in this with them and that you're serious about it and you're going to stick with it, right? So you have those conversations so that everybody is clear what this means. Yes, it's a legal thing, right? Set up the election process through the National Labor Relations Board, but that's the least of it, right? And then based on your experience, you have a sense of what kind of a majority, a supermajority you need, right? Knowing that you're going to be in a battle for the next three months and that management will scare some people. Some people will back out. Some people will not be strong enough or they'll get confused, et cetera. And, and so that by the time you get to the election, if you have 70%, 65%, you may have 58%. So, and, you know, you, you, you have these kind of benchmarks that you use to give workers the best shot at winning possible. And you're talking to workers about this. This is not a secret. Really training people both how to talk to other workers and their cohort, but you're also helping them think through why they have to do things. It's not just because I tell you. It is because this will help you win. 
Do you ever get to the point, though, where you realize that a particular workplace just isn't going to organize, that it's just not yeah. going to happen there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, what's, yeah. What's that like? It's horrible. It's just horrible. Uh, and the effect on workers uh, is... On the ones who want to organize. The ones who want to organize is, is devastating. Right. But I also suspect, I mean, you don't have as much conversation with the people who have decided to opt out or not to do it. But I suspect having known people and talked to them later that in some cases there's real remorse. It wasn't that they didn't want the union. It was that the boss scared them enough to go underground, so to speak, right? And if you've done your job as an organizer, it doesn't make it an easy conversation, but it makes it an honest conversation in that people will have figured out how to really count, you know, to assess the commitment or not commitment, and that they will see what you see, you know, and they may want to say, let's have a vote. We just want to have a vote. And you'll have to explain to them, you know, losing. Let's just acknowledge that people aren't ready here. Let's calm it down. You're going to be here. You can have another conversation with them. We can do this again. But under these conditions, there is no way now to have honest conversations with people because of management's interference. So losing is horrible. Yeah. You know, because uh, I would say one other thing, when workers lose, yeah, the organizer can go home. Right. That worker goes to work the next day and faces the boss who just beat her. Yeah. Yeah. That's so you take this very seriously. Do you have any tricks of the trade to try to prevent those moments of crushing disappointment? Organizing is detail work. It is really knowing who's there, figuring out relationships, who works with who, charting out the place or mapping it as people, following up with people very quickly, building leadership and building people's skills, right? Their speaking skills, maybe, their leadership skills, how they talk to people about the union. People have tremendous talent, right? And when you go into a workplace, it is stunning how little of it management wants. All they want them to do is do what you're told. And so underneath so many people is all this uh, um, just wanting to figure out how to do their job better, how to bring their skills or talents to it. And the union gives them that outlet. As you're helping them develop or helping draw out those skills in those early stages of the process, are you already also working toward the kind of skills that they'll need down the road once they're unionized, say, contract negotiation? Yeah. You know, when people negotiate a contract, members elect their own negotiating committee. They decide what they want to negotiate for, what they want to achieve, right? They'll have an organizer uh, who will help them do that. But we really want to train people to speak up. <laughs> you know, that's part of the other dynamic. All of the people or just, just those Well, you have your committee. You'll have your committee, and that's the key. I mean, they, they need to represent. They need to say why this request, this, this bargaining piece that we want, this change we want is important. And so we will do role plays with them, mm. right, on how to talk to other people, how to say this, what, you know, what it is. And so it is this constant task of building their abilities, building their commitments. And it just is amazing. Bosses don't have a problem talking to me. I'm, they understand. I don't work there. <laughs> and many times after, you know, the union is there, bosses say, listen, man, you know, these seven of the members of your union came in and, you know, can't, can't you and I just work this out, <laughs> right? They much rather just deal with me rather than a really enlivened now you know, really conscious of their own power workforce. Uh -huh. That scares the hell out of them. 
You mentioned that part of what you do is mapping out right. a workplace. Is that a literal thing? Are you literally drawing out a, yeah. a map? Yeah, you have to. I, it, I always say to people, you, you, you can't organize what you can't see. Uh-huh. And since you're not able to go in, you're not able to see how people relate to each other, huh. right? So um, in a big hospital, like, for example, you have a cafeteria and, and, um, and you know, you can sit there for a while and watch how people, who sits next to who, Jane sits down and five people sit around Jane or Tom or whoever it is, right? So you have an idea. Jane collects a crowd. You know, I might want to talk to Jane, right? And so you, you can see it. When you're outside and not able to be in, you can't see it. Mm-hmm. And so you literally do map this thing out. Uh, you put it up on the wall. You know, this department is, you know, whether it's the um, extrusion room or whatever it might be, who works there? In that work area, there's going to be somebody with influence. Mm-hmm. Who is it? Right. And so each when you're building this committee, what you're really thinking about are this group of key leaders and key people. You really want representation from every work area. Right. So it sounds like it's a double kind of map. It's it's to some extent the literal physical spaces yes. of oh, a yes. workplace. But Absolutely. it's also about the less tangible yes. relationships between the individuals yeah. who occupy and, Absolutely. and work in those spaces. Absolutely. And the charts will tell you. Right. It's as you as you go through and you learn who's who and, you know, so you look at an apartment and nobody's for the union, you know, and then you notice that this woman and you see, well, Jane's the leader or Tom's a leader and Tom's not for the union. OK. I mean, leaders can be not for the union. <laughs> you know, it doesn't you know, they're, they have characteristics you, of leadership. Sounds doesn't like you're going to talk more with Tom or Jane. Yeah, you have to go talk to them. And, and sometimes that works and sometimes that that doesn't for for, for whatever reason. But it is about leadership. At some point, I assume you have to walk away. How do you know when it's time to, to say, I'm done, you, you all have it under control, go forth? There really is a point in a campaign where if you've done your work right, there is this shift. And I actually say it to people about two or three weeks out. I said, look, we're getting to the point where my ability to help you is going to be limited because things will start happening very fast. I will not be able to respond because I, I can't go in there with you. If management calls a meeting, if management suddenly someone disappears off the floor and they're in a meeting with two bosses pounding on them, you have to take over. Mm-hmm. And so this has to become your campaign, or ga- really now. And so there is that point when that happens. And when that happens, it's very powerful, right? Because suddenly they have taken it on. And you've done your job to help them be good organizers. And so, you know, I will leave and I'll go to the next campaign. Is that hard to leave? Is oh. it hard to say goodbye? Oh, yeah. I mean, do you build relationships with yeah, people absolutely. along the way? Absolutely. And they, they last. Uh, it, you know, I say to organizers, we're not going there to be friends or people. We're going there to help be an, we're being an organizer. We're going to lead them. And, and certainly we are, have to be very professional about that. You know, you don't want to have be their friend, right, in a way that gets in the way of telling them the truth about what has to happen for them to win. But you absolutely do develop friendships. And, and in my time in the union, I will have to say this, is that a lot of what I know members of the union taught me. <laughs> you know, they taught me about the union. They taught me about what it means to them, right? And they helped me with my skills. And you develop these friendships. I've had workers that I've organized who send my children Christmas cards all the time. 
And every time I see them, it's like, I just love it. I mean, it's like really a reunion for me. Mm-hmm. And members do that among themselves. I mean, people who had, never would have met each other across whatever boundaries, racial, whatever, are now the best of friends because the union does that for people. You've been listening to SEIU labor organizer David Mott. After this brief break, he talks to us about the current political climate from Donald Trump's relationship to workers to the status of so-called right-to-work states. We've been talking about the big picture. Yeah, yeah. But what's a typical day like for you? Is there such a thing no. in union organizing? Not really. I mean, uh, y- you talk about making calls to people's houses. I assume that means it's after work hours, which I also means mm-hmm. I assume that you are not working a nine to five no. job as we would ordinarily understand. Not at all. It. Right. <laughs> yeah. What's the what, schedule like? What is that? What's a nine to five job? Um, <laughs> you know, we have a saying that you are on workers' time. Your day is really determined by workers' time. And, you know, there is really no normal day. But basically, you know, you might have to get up and see someone at a shift change at 6 o'clock in the morning, right? Mm. And then you're coming in, you're doing your planning, you're figuring out what your day looks like. Who do you have to see to move this? Who do you have to follow up with, you know, to move the campaign and the organization forward? What work has to be done? Then there are certain time periods, right, where a later shift you can go see someone on leadership. So all during the day, you're planning out your work to get to the people that will make this happen, right? And uh, and then after 6 o'clock in the morning, maybe you have to do an 11 o'clock shift change at night. You want to go see the cook. You want to go see the late shift person, you know. And so, you know, sometimes during the middle, you'll take a lunch or whatever it is. So you'll have to plan that out based on when you can see people, you know, how you can get in front of most people as quickly as possible to get this campaign going. Mm. The days are long. I mean, you're talking about 10-hour, 12-hour days sometimes, and it ebbs and flows. I mean, it's not like... But certainly as as the campaign begins to reach a crescendo, those are very long days. How much of your time do you spend on your feet during those long days? Um, it depends on the campaign. I was on the fast food campaign organizing fast food workers, you know, mm. in the, uh, the fight for 15, the strikes... And I was on my feet a lot. You know, you're walking, you're, you're talking to people in, at late at night at, here and there, and so you're on your feet a lot. You know, it's a mixture. A lot of what you're doing is finding people. You know, you're out at night, you know. You're out during the day. You're trying to find where people live. You're driving a lot. There's a lot of driving, I would say that, a lot of driving. Today you're wearing a, a light blue dress shirt and it looks like dress trousers. Yeah. A, a pair of uh, uh, Oxfords. Uh, Oxford shoes. Is that what they are? Okay. Uh, <laughs> technically, they're bolt shoes. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I may be pronouncing that wrong. Okay, <laughs> but uh, but dress shoes. You, yeah, you, you, yeah, you're yeah. dressed. You're dressed business casual yeah, today. Yeah. Is that typical for you, or when you go into a workplace, are you trying to? Uh, do you go in workplace camouflage? Oh no, 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 no. You don't go into the workplace. You oh, won't. okay. You don't. That's the point about not organ- at all. No, you cannot do I it. I should have realized that already. From no, our that, that's not the case. That's why. It, it is all of this figuring out who works there, getting going to their homes. You want to be in a place where you can have a quality conversation with someone. That will mm-hmm. never happen in the workplace. and Because it's not safe. Yeah, it's not safe. The boss is there, but we can't go on the property. It's not our property. You know, if we represent workers, then we have rights based on the contract to go in and talk with people, et cetera. That changes. But when you're organizing, 
you're outside, mm. right? So yes, this is, when I was in the local um, and out organizing regularly in front of members, in front, we always had a rule, you wore a tie, okay. right? You wore a tie, you were respectful, right? You know, I'm not gonna show up like a janitor if, you know, in, in green coveralls, whatever, that they're, you, that's their uniform. Even uni- if you're organizing janitors. Yeah, that's their uniform, right? That's what they wear. I'm going to show up showing them the respect of coming to see them looking, you know, neat, right? And also, I want them to understand this is, I'm serious about this. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to wear a suit. You know, that's not, I don't think that's appropriate. I'm not going to look like a businessman because I'm not, right? But I do want to be respectful to people. So the goal is not look like one of the workers. It's no. be respectful to the workers. Right. You're not, you're not the, trying to trick them into thinking no. you're like them or I'm, something. This is me. Okay. And I'm coming to you as me, as an organizer for my union. And I have, I have a, a standard that I hold, and I hold it because I respect you. So when you're doing field organization, do you have a desk that you go back to? Oh, yeah. Yeah, usually. So you have an office somewhere yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, an office. When I first started out, I will just say this. When I first started out and, and I was hired as a, as, a, as a regular organizer, you know, it was very early in the days. We had a garage was our office. We had a couple of tables and so forth. We changed a little bit. I now have an office. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and I had an office when I was in the local. And I have one when I, as an international organizer. But, you know, as an organizer, you're not spending a lot of time there. If you're spending a lot of time in your office, you are not doing your job. And, and it really is important to, to understand that your job is outside. It is with the workers, yeah. not in an office. Has the rise of Trump affected your efforts or the efforts of other organizers at all? I, I don't know that, that it's affected it uh, Im- immediately, right? I, I think that there is really great concern that Trump and the people around him are completely clueless, and I think malevolently so, about the rights of workers, mm. right? So people say, oh, the labor movement's having a hard time. Ah, labor movement's not having a hard time. Workers are having a hard time, right? Union rights. They want union rights. Workers. We want workers to have rights to organize. We want workers to have rights to have a, a functioning, financially stable, powerful organization. And so all of the attacks, and you see Pence, you see other people ar- around him, and in states, all this, what they call the right to work, you know, bills. Can which you tell re- us what those are? Yeah. I mean, it's a complete misnomer, right? If it was the right to work, bosses would respect workers and respect the work. And if you wanted a job, you could get one. You know, you know, in this country, if you want a job, you have to count on someone hiring you, right? A boss. And it's always under their terms. Building the union is what changes that. It's not always on their terms. Now you have a say about it. But the right to work is essentially saying that once workers have made a decision to have a union, the boss no longer really has to honor that, right? And it allows people to decide whether or not they want to pay dues, get in or get out. People workers? Say, oh, yeah, yeah, workers, workers. Workers. And, you know, workers voted to have a union, to have a stable organization, to have a strong organization. What right to work really does, it allows the boss to keep the debate about the union going on forever and to use their authority, their power, their, their misrepresentations to divide workers, which means workers lose, right? That's what right to work is. 
And so people would say, well, you should join or not join the union. Well, wait a minute. I didn't vote for Trump. Do I have a right to go set up another country somewhere? Do I have a right because I didn't vote for Trump not to obey the laws? No. People make a decision democratically in this country. Workers made a democratic decision in this workplace. That needs to be honored. And this this right to work legislation makes it so that they don't have to respect the decisions. They don't have to. I mean, they have. They might have to sit down, but then they know that you know they can split off people. They can enti- mm-hmm. you know as they hire more. It 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 never allows workers to solidify their organization. It puts block after block after barricade after barricade in their way, right? And that's wrong. And you think that the Trump administration's agenda is oh, absolutely connected to this? Yeah, this I movement? do. Yeah, I mean, it's been going on for for a long time. It's not new, but uh, I, I think it's very troublesome. And I think that you know the ability of people to make progress uh, is is important. And Trump's, you know, you look at deregulation, right? That's just another code word for letting bosses do whatever they want, and. This idea that the framework for bosses and the rules for bosses are going to be lessened, but workers, you know, still have to toe the line. So I think, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's very problematic. When Trump talks about jobs, as he often does, mm-hmm. he almost is always talking about very specific kinds of jobs. He's not talking about right. healthcare workers generally, even though that's one of the fastest growing. Right. Industries mm-hmm. uh, in the United States. Yeah. Oh, it is. He's, he's talking about <clears throat> uh, factory jobs. Uh, he's talking about other kinds of uh, manual labor, like coal mining. Mm-hmm. Um, what does the emphasis on those kind of jobs as the real kind of jobs, the meaningful kind of jobs, do to work that you do to, you know, get people to recognize and protect the dignity of other forms of work? You know, in this society, a lot of manufacturing has gone by the wayside. It's, it's a highly service economy. That That's not anything new. Um, you know, I think that, you know, to talk about manufacturing jobs as if they are the paradigm is actually not accurate. The manufacturing jobs that became the paradigm, right, auto workers, steel, that they were crap jobs mm-hmm. before workers organized the union. Right. So it isn't a matter of the uh, jobs. It is about how much the jobs pay and about who has the power to set those standards. Right. And, and so that really is the more important thing. You know, having manufacturing jobs is great. Yes, we want them. You know, uh, there's a whole element of the labor movement that really is about that. And it is important. It's extremely important. But the point really is manufacturing jobs at what standards? Service jobs at what standards? It is a crime in this country that we have people who are living in big urban areas making $7.25 an hour. Either we believe in lifting people up and we believe in sharing the wealth or we don't. It's not rocket science. (laughs) It really isn't. It's hard. But it's not rocket science. You know, either you have power or you don't. And unions give workers power. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was fun. I hope it worked. This was delightful. I hope it worked. I hope hope organizers, uh, I will say this, uh, I I was a little anxious about this because truthfully, there are just so many talented organizers. And um, 
you know, there are people that are much, much better than me that do this. And I just hope that I have represented the work that they do accurately and properly. It is, it is really good work. It is wonderful work. And we're grateful to all of them. Thanks. Thanks so much for being with oh, us. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. I'm Jacob Brogan, and I scored better than Mickey Capper on the Slate News Quiz this week. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Our email address is working at slate.com. We love getting emails from you all. Uh, we try to be really responsive to those and to uh, shape the show around what you, our listeners, uh, have to say about it. Um, this is our last episode of our current season about jobs imperiled by the Trump presidency. We have a lot of ideas uh, about what's ahead, uh, but we'll be taking a break of a few weeks. Uh, we'll be back at the beginning of April with more. In the meantime, you can listen to past episodes at slate.com slash working. And we would still, uh, you know, of course, welcome those emails, welcome reviews and such on iTunes. Working is produced and edited by Mickey Capper. Our executive producer is Steve Lichtai, and the chief content officer of the Panoply Network is Andy Bowers. We will see you in April. We're excited to do more for you very soon.